This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. On the day that he was killed, 30-year-old Jordan Neely was hungry. Hungry, thirsty, and tired of having nothing. We know about his hunger, his thirst, his exhaustion, and his need because he told people. Now, he didn't tell a therapist or a social worker. He didn't tweet it out into an anonymous social media cloud. He didn't whisper it quietly to a loved one. That's what so many of us do. Jordan Neely shouted it, impolitely, in public, to strangers on a moving subway train in New York City. He cried out to those strangers on that train about his pain, his hopelessness, his hunger. In response, one of these strangers put Jordan Neely in a chokehold for nearly 15 minutes until he died. This is what one New York City subway commuter told CNN. It could have been somebody there to help him, broke it up or anything, stop the whole situation. But it's like, at the same time, he don't deserve to lose his life just for being on the train. I think he should still be alive today. Now, protests have rocked the city's subways on behalf of this talented dancer, known for his Michael Jackson impersonations, a man whose mental health deteriorated following the murder of his mother. Jordan did seek help from the New York City Department of Homeless Services, but that help, or from the city, or from his fellow passengers, did not arrive in time to save his life. Joining me now is Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change. Rashad, welcome back to The Takeaway. Thanks for having me. Why has Jordan Neely's death ignited such a strong response? You know... We saw it on the video and heard the initial sort of callous reactions from some elected officials like the mayor of New York City. And we, in an ongoing way, nearly three years after we watched the murder of George Floyd, of the heir being pushed out of his body, we continue to see such visible lack of care, respect, and dignity for Black life. And that, those images, that video, the people standing around, all of that, I think, push people to want to speak out, to make demands. And and connecting that with what has become clear, that so many in society are willing to tolerate this. And for those of us who are unwilling to accept it, the only thing is that we must raise our voices. We must speak out. We must push back. And we must demand the type of structural changes and accountability necessary um, because what we know is if we don't, this will continue and continue in ways where we don't have video and don't have access to the type of content that helps everyone understand what has transpired. So I'm so interested in this question of sort of structural changes in this context. In the murder of George Floyd, we are talking about, you know, someone who works for the city, works for the state, who is a police officer, who has a sworn duty, right, to protect and to serve. And and then, of course, all of the other officers who stand and watch this. In this case, with Jordan Neely, it's a civilian, a 24-year-old Daniel J. Penny. Mr. Penny is a had served as a Marine. 
how could we have structural change relative to a civilian taking action like this? Well, first of all, the structural changes start before uh, Mr. Penny is choking and killing uh, Mr. Neely. The structural changes happen in terms of where do we place our investments? Where do we place our resources? Budgets are moral documents, and they say more about what we care about than any rhetoric or words. And the conversations around safety and justice that have prioritized policing over investments in mental health, investments in uh, social work, investments in healthcare, have left so many uh, folks vulnerable, targeted, attacked. You know, at Color of Change, we worked with Vera and the Brookings Institute to release a vision for public safety that goes beyond policing, but that does talk about the type of investments that we need in communities. If we make those investments in the long run, we actually save more money, but more importantly, we save more lives. So structural changes starts first and foremost about where we start before this incident actually happens. And then what has been allowed from police, um, what society accepts from police, um, trickles down to others who believe that they have authority and power um, in our society. And, and Melissa, you know, some of the most visible moments of mobilization that have happened over the last, you know, decade plus of Black Lives Matter haven't simply been about police officers. They have been about vigilantes. In 2012, um, the murder of Trayvon Martin, that was not a police officer. And, and, and since then, we have seen many other incidents. Uh, Lucy McBath is in Congress because her son, Jordan, was murdered by a vigilante. And so we um, do have a society that um, sends a message, sends a reward structure, sends a, a kind of privilege structure to white people about the value of Black people and Black lives. And even when we do um, sometimes get a, a prosecution or accountability that comes after someone has been harmed, hurt, or killed, that doesn't bring anyone back. Um, and it certainly doesn't change the fact that every single day, um, these messages continue to get sent, um, not just by the ways in which our laws operate, laws like Stand Your Ground and others, but also the ways in which our media depictions and the content that comes from Hollywood sends a very powerful message about the reward structure, about the pride that we take um, in vigilantes in this country. We're going to pause right here for just a moment, Rashad, but we'll be right back in just a moment. We've got more on the killing of Jordan Neely and the questions it opens for all of us. Stay with us. It's The Takeaway. Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. You're with The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and I'm still in conversation with Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change. We're talking about the killing of Jordan Neely, a young Black man, by a former Marine and a subway rider. 
Okay, Rashad, I want to I'm going to dig in one more point on this as you were talking about budgets being moral documents about investments. On the one hand, we've heard from New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Um, he told Business Insider, "Quote: This is what highlights what I've been saying throughout my administration. People who are dealing with mental health illness should get the help they need and not live on the train. I'm going to continue to push on that." But we also know that that Jordan Neely was on a list um, known to outreach workers as the top 50 um, as being among the most at risk, unhomed people in the city. And yet it wasn't really clear, you know, whether the city had kind of lost track of him. So I guess I'm kind of this difference between they should go get the help they need and what seems like Jordan Neely's attempts to get help. Well, it's such a, a sort of a passive way to talk about what needs to happen from a mayor that um, is oftentimes anything but passive in how he talks about responses uh, to issues of safety and justice. Uh, and so to talk about Jordan should get help, you know, I think doesn't lean into the fact that there is broad based social agreement about the need for investments in mental health services and including crisis response. And I think that society and, and people, when they when they talk about the need for that, are talking about a more active engagement from our government and from our structures, knowing that simply leaving um, the, the next steps up to people who are facing deep mental challenges, facing all sorts of insecurities, whether it's um, housing or other types of insecurities that make the kind of a regular cadence of treatment challenging, that this is where a society leans in. You know, I hear people talk about uh, compassion and empathy and, and these words a lot at the individual level. But when I talk about budgets and when I talk about investments, I'm talking about what does it mean for a society to be compassionate and empathetic? What does it mean for a justice system to be compassionate and empathetic? And that means that we have to invest in a more active role and an active engagement if we want to do something. The, the mayor's response um, about folks just needing to go do something doesn't actually walk us to anywhere closer to what we need to be doing. And in fact, in some ways, it sets us up for more of these responses and incidents because it's almost like a washing of the hands of, of what um, one of the largest and richest cities in the world should be doing uh, to deal with these crises. And, and given everything that we know that's happening in society since 2020, all of the ways in which we've um, had so much broken in terms of our ability to engage, connect, work together, be together, that those who um, were already suffering, um, we have to lean in a different way. And, um, and that is going to be about investments. It's going to be about leadership. And it's going to be about having a different vision for public safety beyond just thinking about policing and beyond thinking about violence as a solution to dealing with problems in society um, and people in society that we may not like. Um, let's talk about moving beyond so much of what Color of Change does is not only organizing, right, digital organizing, on the ground organizing, right, moving people to various actions, but you all are also really extraordinary storytellers, helping us to reframe how we think about public events, how we think about what the possibilities are for the future. 
tell me what kinds of stories we need to be telling or that um, we need to stop telling in this context, sort of what Jordan Neely's killing tells us about the stories that aren't a loop. I fundamentally believe that creative content, the stories that come out of Hollywood and, or enter our stages around the country or show up on any of our screens, have so much potential to unlock opportunities and not just sort of obligations, have the ability to, to reach us in new ways. But right now, on a day-to-day -day basis, so much of the content normalizes this type of injustice. It's why we produced a report called Normalizing Injustice, where we looked at all the crime television shows across the season, and we have another one of those looks coming out in a couple of months. And that report really dug in to all of the ways in which our television program, those crime procedural shows, those Law & Order and CSI type shows show the the quote-unquote good guy the law enforcement officer stepping outside of the rules stepping outside of the kind of uh set of obligations and responsibilities that they're sworn to and the law and then the end justifies the means whether it's violence whether it's surveillance whether it's other things that are not actually the rules doing those things and then be rewarded and us almost celebrating and cheering that sort of behavior because there's this idea that it's okay because it keeps us safe. So if those that have all of the tools of the state are incentivized on television programs to still violate the law in order to create some semblance of justice, that absolutely sends a message. But beyond that, Melissa, the idea of a vigilante, the idea of a, a kind of lone wolf person uh, taking justice into their own hands, stepping outside of the law, the rules, and we are trained and we are taught to root for those folks, um, that they are our heroes in society. And unless we begin to tell a different set of stories, build a new canon of creative content that prioritizes what societies can look like when we have investments, how we can work together to solve problems, how we can create real accountability um, when these moments come up and how we manage and navigate conflict. I believe those can be very creative stories, but so much of our content now, and it's not just the television and, and movies, it's our content that comes out of gaming that in many ways um, creates an interaction for so many young men in particular to be the character that is saving the day through a whole set of actions. Now, I love entertainment and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have entertaining content, but we have to be realistic about what the kind of messages that we, in an ongoing way to send society about the ends that justify the means and understanding the deep levels of racial discriminations, the way that our justice system doesn't work, all means that at the end of the day, Black people become not just the ends, but the means. And at the same time, once again, almost three years after the remembrance of George Floyd's um, murder, where Black people saw themselves in those images, saw a police officer so comfortable choking the life out of one of our own that we see now a regular citizen being able to do the same thing and having those who 
our elected officials twist themselves in knots or very casually find ways to defend this type of behavior. We have the ability to change it. And I mean, I want to invite people in to join us in that effort, whether it is the fight to hold Hollywood accountable or whether it is the fight to create new laws and accountability or whether it is the work to unlock resources that help us reimagine public safety and do the work that moves us forward. Rashad Robinson is president of Color of Change. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. Thank you for having me.